Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Want support. Curtis Fleming is there on the edge of the air. Fleming for Craig Hignett. Hit it, Higgy. Higgy hits the track. Abanelli coming alive again. Janino wants the ball played to him. Abanelli spots out. Hello and welcome to the Board Breakdown podcast with Johnny Bullock and my guest today, Dan Abrahams. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks, Johnny. Really uh, honoured to be here to speak to you today. Uh, so, Dan, uh, to give people a, a bit of a background, you're a sports psychologist. Um, you have a really good podcast in the Sports Psych Show. Um, you've worked with footballers, coaches, golfers. Yeah, I've got four books out as well in terms of Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough 2, uh, soccer brain and uh, golf tough as golf well. Tough. Yeah, golf tough. Yep. yeah, golf tough as well. Um, firstly, when I was doing my, my research initially on you, um, when I found I initially found your podcast first and then unraveled everything else, which maybe was a strange way to find you. I don't really know. Um, but I heard you were a pro golfer, right? And then you've moved into sports psychology. So, one, how did you get into sports psychology? And two, Stepping into football as well, obviously the emotional side of it, it must be huge and really a, a learning emotional experience. Yeah, sure. So um, as you say, I was a, I was a professional golfer and um, I would be, if I was to be 100% honest, I would say I wasn't a particularly successful one. I didn't win any money, <laughs> which is when you're a professional, not, not a great mix. Um, and part of the reason was because what was going on between my two ears, basically. Um, I didn't know how to concentrate effectively. I didn't know how to deal with um, mistakes made, um, errors, um, bad games. Um, I didn't really know how to build my confidence. I was always somewhat self-conscious about uh, around what everybody else was thinking about me and so on and so forth. And so I mean, I, I, my interest in sports psychology had started sort of prior to my professional career. I was a teenager who tended to read sports psychology books and motivational books and things like that as I was developing my golf. Um, but I saw a few sports psychologists as a as a pro golfer. And when I realized I wasn't going to quite compete with Tiger Woods and I started to uh, uh, coach the game for a career, um, I 
I, I suppose my interest furthered there as I was coaching. Um, and um, I decided, you know what, I want to take this a few steps further. So I went to university at that time. I was I was coaching sort of 30, 40 hours a week. Um, and then on the side, I did a degree in psychology and a master's degree in sports psychology. And then I came to a bit of a crossroads. You know, what do I want to do? Do I want to be a golf coach and, and have the psychology qualifications on the side? Or do I want to push golf aside and go full on being a, a, a sports psychologist? And I chose the latter largely because I wanted to work across sports. I also wanted to potentially look at taking psychology, performance psychology into other domains and fields. And um, and so I chose to become a, a registered and, and fully qualified sports psychologist. That was about 17 years ago now. And over the last 17 years, that's that's what I've been doing. I've been blessed to work with um, a num- number of um, great players and coaches and then in a number of sports. I've been lead psychologist for England golf. Um, I've worked with players on both sides of the Atlantic in that sport. Um, I've, I was lead psychologist for England rugby, working alongside Eddie Jones going into the last World Cup. Um, and actually, uh, and probably one of the reasons why you you have me here on this podcast is because for the last 17 years, the vast majority of my work has been in football um, globally. Um, I've held contracts with a number of Premier League clubs and championship clubs. I've been blessed to work with some 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 really great players very kindly last year Gareth Bale came out and said my first book Soccer Tough uh, where he said it changed his life I don't think it changed his life <laughs> but, uh, but but it was very kind of him to say so um, and so it's just really snowballed from there so so I, I, I've just been wonderfully blessed just to work with so many great players so many great teams and and so many great coaches uh, and so that kind of brings us up to date yeah, and I kind of want to go on to, you were saying there on 17 years of experience across multiple uh, sports. Um, I mean, really, really nice of Gareth Bell to say that as well. Um, was was there a fee involved? Or, I mean, I mean, the book is fantastic, to be fair. I, I really enjoyed it myself. But um, it's, I mean, what a, what a great compliment. But you said 17 years. How has sports psychology changed over that time? Because, I mean, only very recently, mental health has become much more of a, as more spoke about subjects, especially mm-hmm. in sport. Um, but mm-hmm. how was how was those seventeen years changed? I have an interesting relationship with this notion that you know only recently mental health has has been put front and center is probably too strong a term for it but you know sports psychology uh, is a discipline that if you pick up the core textbook of sports psychology not that necessarily any of your listeners would have any desire to do so but if you did you'd be confronted with 64 chapters it's a really mm. really broad subject matter and um you know as a sports psychologist you can absolutely um at at very low levels of mental health you know very i should actually say surface levels of mental health challenges you can help players you can also help um participants players with their day-to-day well-being and um and welfare um but a lot of our work 
and I would argue the majority of our work is in the performance domain, is performance psychology. Um, It's, you know, I I talk about three Ps being vital, participation, progression, and performance. So we, the participation piece is player engagement. You know, we help players to engage, pay attention to what they're doing today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this this season. Um, We help coaches to help players to do that. Um, we help players to learn and we help coaches to help players to learn and that you know infiltrates into session design skill acquisition coaching science and then the performance piece we help players to consistently high perform under pressure Um, uh, beyond that extending beyond that we help with teamwork with leadership with coach athlete relationships Um, we help on the emotional side of the game we help uh, shift uh, player behavior Um, we help coaches cultivate environments healthy and safe coaching environments Uh, we help coaches themselves with their self-skills self-awareness self-control self-development self-reflection there's a whole range of things that we do and there will be specialists you know there'll be sports psychologists who would say well i very much stick to the mental health piece or i very much stick to the performance psych piece i'm a mental skills coach so we probably all have our own preferences and specialities within this hugely broad uh discipline within this hugely broad area um but that gives you an idea of 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 what we do and i suppose it's remiss of me also not to mention that we can intervene on an organizational level hmm. uh, i mean a couple of years ago i had i was headhunted to potentially do some work at a, at a very 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 big club um in england and part of the remit was working at boardroom level uh, to help mm. them deal with the stresses and strains possibly mm. coming from from the passion of the fans um the stresses of, and strains of being in a broad boardroom and you know we can we can intervene top down and bottom up so there's so many things that we can potentially do um that doesn't mean we get everything right doesn't mean we're jack of all trades but um it does mean that we can offer um quite a lot Hmm. i want to talk about the different sides of football in terms of there's probably much more um than just a player there's a coach and you say in boardroom that how does your work differentiate to each individual uh person i mean obviously everyone's different but in terms of like people within the organization how would your work change yeah, uh, it's a really good question. It's, that's a tricky one to answer, you know, in as much as, I mean, I suppose the way to picture this, and I don't know if I'm I'm fully answering your question, we'll, we'll come on to doing it. But if I can get people to visualize a kind of a, a circle with, with myself as sports psychologist in the middle, and around the edges of that circle are the different areas uh, of the club. So you, you, you'll have the coaching staff, with the manager the head coach you know you'll have the players the playing group you'll have uh, medical you'll have sports science um and then you'll have you know you can have the 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 the, the, the kit men you you can have um you know the kitchen staff you can have you know, then we're going to go on to people who are working in the back office you know the marketing team the social media mm. team and so on and so forth so um 
if you're looking at an all-round surface, if a service, if I'm in the middle, I could be going to each of these at different times. You know, I would say mm. the majority of my work would always be with the coaches, with and through the coaches, with the players, um, situated maybe towards the medical and sports science departments. Um, but I will be going to each of these areas within an organization and working with each one where appropriate. But it does depend on my remit, you know, um, which will be sort of sorted out at the beginning of any kind of uh, appointment. Um, in terms of how I deal with with people individually, it just depends on what their role is. You know, mm. I always say that, you know, ultimately I help people with their performance moments in many respects. Now, obviously the performance moments for players are, you know, once maximum twice, twice a week. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's when you're helping them, but people in the back office, their performance moments are multiple times a day. Um, you know, whether it's pitching, selling, whether it's, uh, meeting a deadline and so on and so forth. So it's like, you know, every listener, uh, all those listening in will, uh, might want to think about themselves in the workplace and might want to think about the challenges that they face. A sports psychologist working with a, within an organization would help those people deal with their performance moments effectively around concentration and confidence and control as in self-control and commitment and cohesion and uh, collaboration and cooperation and communication and so on and so forth. Lots of C words there. So, um, it, it's difficult to say what well, I would work with this individual in this way, but as a broad brush statement, by and large, people are people um, and we all have our performance moments and it's striving to get the most from those performance moments. Mm. You were saying, uh, we're saying moments there. Um, football is in moments. Um, and I remember reading in your ebook that you were saying that the, the distance between success and failure is, is so minimal um but when moments go well great but when moments go bad um how do you see a player change in those in those type of moments because like you said success and failure is so minimal and the emotional roller coaster of football of getting picked not getting picked uh scoring getting or not missing that big chance getting sacked winning defeats like it's such an emotional driving sport so like how do you try and take out that emotion side of things and make something more logical is is that probably the best way to say it rather than emotional um no i i uh, what i would do i don't think you you can't take emotion out of everything because every emotion is constantly there or at least feeling is constantly there mm. to me it's about helping players people manage uh manage emotion or feeling um uh, and use it, uh, to use it effectively. I mean, it could be a sense of losing it, um, but uh, or turning down the volume of it. But use it effectively. Manage it and use it. Manage it and perhaps lose it at times. You know, to speak to what you're saying, and and if we can bring this alive for your audience. I mean, imagine watching um, your team in this case. Uh, Middlesbrough, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, you know, imagine watching Borough and um, you're you're looking at these, you know, 11 players on your team against 11 players in the opposition. So, you, and you're watching this ball being kicked up and down the field, up and down the pitch. Um, we're looking at the external. 
you know, we're watching the external, we're watching runs, movements, positioning, we're watching passing, tackles, challenges, shots, and so on and so forth. That's the external. But what a lot of people don't always appreciate is that the internal is heavily influencing, is heavily mediating, is perhaps driving the external. The internal mm. drives the external. And it, that's a useful way to look at this game is to consider that. Now, a lot of people say to me, well, Dan, I can, I get that golf can be psychological because it's a self-paced mm. sport. It's slow. There's lots of time, lots of time to think, but how on earth can football be psychological? Mm. Well, think about that internal driving the external. What we know from neuroscience, there's a lot, a lot we don't know about the brain. Uh, in fact, we, we don't know uh, we don't know a hell of a lot about the brain, right? But what we do know is essentially the brain works in milliseconds. If football works in seconds, think about a game. The brain works in milliseconds. The brain and the nervous system works in milliseconds. That's a process called ambient neural, neural activity. Sorry for the uh, psychological terminology, ambient neural activity. The brain is constantly processing and reprocessing and connecting and reconnecting the brain cells. It's constantly happening. And that's why thoughts and feelings arise, emerge and dissolve, emerge and dissolve, emerge and dissolve as we go about our daily lives. Well, this is happening to players as well. That's the mm. interesting thing is that you talk to a player about what they're thinking about on the pitch. By and large, they're just thinking about the game or not, they're not thinking about much at all. They're just focusing on the task at hand. But often thoughts and feelings just arise. And, and, and what, those, what the content of those thoughts and feelings tend to be depend on what's going on during the game. You know, mm. how's it going? Okay. And so, what again what we know about the brain if, if it's working in milliseconds it's constantly judging what's going on around us it's looking for rewards and it's looking for threats it's looking for rewards and it's looking for threats rewards and mm. threats the reward we've just scored a threat are oh, this opposite this this, this 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 striker is so quick so strong i'm really struggling to get near him we're constantly judging we're looking for rewards and threats and rewards sound really good great we're going to go up but actually that can distract us that can cause us to get sloppy or careless. And if we think about a threat, oh, this striker is so quick, so I'm not going to get near this, this, this player, that is going to be unhelpful. That's going to cause an emotional response, a panic, a worry, a doubt, uh, anxiety. Um, we can experience lethargy in a moment. We can get despondent. We can get down on ourselves. So the content of these thoughts and feelings that are constantly bubbling away under the surface influence our technical tactical and physical functioning so hmm. now we're rising to the surface and it's what we see at the surface level all of a sudden we're our awareness lessens so we play hmm. tunnel vision if we experience anxiety or stress or worry or doubt or despondency hmm. or lethargy we experience tunnel vision so we don't see the 360 degree view we we're slower to anticipate so we're slower to cover space we're slower to get into space to make ourselves available you know to get in between the defenders we're slower to pick out a pass and so on and so forth so awareness and anticipation are affected decision making suffers mm -hmm. we might hide um we might uh, play the simpler pass than the um 
more decisive and more impactful through ball. Um, and our physical functioning uh, lessens. You know, not only are we slower to find space, we, are, we also become weaker in the challenge. Um, so there's so many things that are happening under the surface, under the, the bonnet, if you like, that are impacting what we're seeing at the surface level. Mm. And so this is what's ha- this is what's happening, and this is how it unfolds. So how a player deals with not just what's going on around them, but how what they're experiencing internally heavily influences their capacity to execute the actions, the performance actions and the responsibilities within their role. And that's where I come in and say, hey, everybody, we need world-class mental frameworks to help our players be able to optimize their capacity to fulfill the responsibilities within their role. I help players have frameworks for Saturday in order to high perform more consistently under pressure. Mm. That was really interesting. That was that was really interesting because as a fan, you don't see that internal view. Obviously, you were saying at the start of that, um, we only see that perfection type of play. You know, why did he miss that pass by an inch? Why did he miss that shot? We don't really see the the internal battle of that. But there's a lot of things that you're saying there around, around confidence, Mm-hmm. And gaining and losing confidence, I think, in any walk of life is is very fragile in itself. I think I, I myself, I think I imposter syndrome a lot last a lot last year. Um, and although I was performing well at work, the internal side of me was going, it, it could be better, or you know, what I mean, or it wasn't as good as it maybe it could have been. And how do you, how do you identify low confidence in a player? Because like it was, was he saying there was it around like hiding, um, but how does that like fluctuate? Because it is so fragile. You're in an emotional driven sport, but how do you manage that as a, as a psychologist? Um, uh, let's let's explore how one identifies that. I mean, mm. one of the challenges you do have is that, and and this is quite endemic within elite sports in general, not just mm. football, but it's very much a, a football thing as well is there's um you know historically you're very socialized in elite sport into this notion of toughness and we can't show any weakness um and there's often in these environments uh, premier league championship league one league two and so on and so forth there's very little room for vulnerability there's very little room. there's not the space necessarily given uh for players to say hey gaffer i'm not very confident at the moment you know they're very scared and fearful and that, and that's understandably so because um you know they'll feel they'll just be dropped they'll be discarded um there's not a lot of um space for vulnerability for openness for honesty um now we that's that's a topic in and of itself and we can talk about that the the you know building an environment that creates space mm-hmm. for that um but that that's that's makes identifying low confidence a real challenge Mm. um and absolutely you could potentially see it through the behaviors of players through 
you know, at a very basic level, mm. body language, but also what is that play, player doing? I think experienced coaches can see players mm. hiding. They can kind of get the feel that, yeah, that player hid there. That player would normally show for it in that. Or that player, when they did show for it, it wasn't very decisive. It wasn't very dynamic. You know, they really didn't get in front of that defender there, rest, mm. you know, hold him off, uh, rest, want to really really be vocal and loud to you know almost begging to receive the ball um you know that's a confident player and if you've seen that historically and then you see something different you can kind of identify that Mm. often though in these environments you're kind of taking a guess you know you're kind of trying to you're thinking ah that strike hasn't scored for a bit looked a little bit despondent on Saturday I'm going to sidle up there and have a little bit of a conversation with that strike just 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 open up that he was in my my presentation the other day I gave him a few ideas let's let's see what what resonated with him so you're looking for if you're involved in it with the team you're and you're you're on site you're present on location you're kind of looking for pockets of conversations you know to be able to 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 talk about this stuff um uh, and and so that's the kind of the identification piece. And of course, a coach might come up to me and say, hey, Johnny right now, Johnny has no confidence at all. You know, we've got to work with Johnny. Mm. So there, there might be that element. Um, now, you know, from there, um, there's multiple ways you can help a player um, develop mm. confidence. Um, you know, whether that's through um, teaching them basic mental, we can, we can, talk about this whether it's the basics of mental skills um whether it's helping a coach create a uh, a, a session through their session design mm. that actually uh builds a player's player's confidence you can do that as well we can talk about that but there are multiple ways in which you can build confidence but mm. um it, as you say it has to be identified first and that can be a that can be tricky within a, any kind of coaching culture that tends to lean towards um, a lack of openness. Hmm. Yeah, I want to go into culture because I think you obviously you said quite a lot around there about creating an environment and man- and you said there around like a management uh, a manager call up to a player and saying oh he hasn't got much confidence at the moment. What does good culture and bad culture look like to you? And then also, how would a manager go and create a, a a good culture? Like coming in from coming in from afar, he's noticed there's a bad culture at the club. How would he go in and look to try and change that? Um, good culture and bad culture. A culture that helps. A culture that might hinder. Um, I'm always reticent. Let, let, let's 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 be clear. Bullying and any kind of ism, racism, mm. sexism. Uh, elitism perhaps i think would be could come under the umbrella term of bad culture in my opinion mm. I, I and i've been in cultures that i mm. you know quite prominent cultures that i would say are bullying cultures or have elements of that that's what i would admit to being in my opinion a bad culture mm. um by and large i try to be empathetic with coaches because there's Mm. so many different ways to coach there's not really one right way apart from as i've mentioned bullying and isms um so it's more about asking three questions to coaches what are you with your culture and or with your environment what are you trying to do how are you trying to do it why are you doing it in this way 
And maybe from there, what other ways are there to do this? How might you incorporate those ways? And why might these ways be better than the way you're doing it right now? So what, how and why I think lie at the heart of critical thinking. And mm. if I may say so, I'm not always convinced that critical thinking and the highest level of football go hand in hand. I think it's getting better, if I may be so bold to say. But <laughs> I, I, historically, I, I've not always been convinced that, you know, it, it's been very much a culture that this is the way it's been done for many years. This is how we're going to continue to do it, if I why may could, say so. Sorry, Dan, why, why, yeah. why would you say that? Um, why would you say it hasn't? really kicked on because i think that not always at the top of a coach's at, at the very at the elite level the mm. coaches coming through some of whom are fantastic coaches and wonderful mm. wonderful people mm. but what's not always been at the top of coaches wish list in terms of their development and education mm. has been critical thinking Hmm. Uh, I'm going to give you two um, probably overcomplicated terms, but unpack them a little bit. Uh, epistemological chain and metacognition. Yeah. I told you they were going to be overcomplicated <laughs> terms, but <laughs> epistemological chain has a very, very simple explanation, which is where do I get my knowledge from? How hmm. do I learn? Which is really important. Hmm. You know, it's important for developing footballers. It's important for elite level footballers, adult footballers. And it's it's important for coaches, because mm. if you got your knowledge from a mentor who played in the 1970s or coached in the 1970s and is persistently saying, this is how we did it back then. This is the way to do it. Mm. Then some of the time that might be a great way to coach. Some of the time it might not be, particularly with the Generation Z, Millennial Generation, particularly mm. with the advantage, ad, uh, advances we've made in sports science, sports psychology, uh, the, the science of coaching and so on and so forth. So mm. it, 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 if with your epistemological chain, you're saying, well, I, I like to listen to Frank, who was, you know, a great coach in the 1970s, and he's saying this, I mm. want that coach to build the capacity to go what, how, why? What am mm. I doing alongside Frank here? How am I doing it? And why am I listening to Frank here? Mm. Epistemological check. And mm. really that goes hand in hand with metacognition, which is essentially thinking about your thinking. You mm. know, what are my beliefs? What are my values? What, what am I thinking here? Mm. And so those two go hand in hand. Your capacity to critique your own thinking, your, your own way of doing and being and behaving and acting and your own beliefs and your own knowledge base. That's mm. so, so important. And that just hasn't been at the top, uh, top of coaches, in my opinion, their wish list. It's mainly been about, well, tactical knowledge, systems and quite a bit on session design when it mm. comes to perhaps the psychological side of the game the biopsychosocial side of the game um the philosophical intricacies of learning and knowledge these mm. things are kind of pushed aside largely because probably people like me come along and go epistemological chain and metacognition everybody <laughs> goes what are you talking about right four four two four three one five six seven you know and it's like and and so there's a comfort in mm. 
a very um, detailed, advanced, complex uh, calculations around tactical uh, data. But mm. there's a discomfort around these kind of what could be considered more fluffy, mm. um, um, educational sounding um, mm. knowledge, learning philosophies and 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 mindset and mental um, concepts and constructs. And that's mm. why is my very long winded and somewhat in-depth reasoning as to why we haven't kicked off. Now, maybe it's incumbent on us to scaffold things down, make things simpler. Uh, absolutely. But there's got to be a meeting in the middle, you know. And, 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 and you know, the, you've got me on my soapbox here. I mean, I, I've, sat, um, I've sat before a game on the bench with a bunch of players and, and overheard a couple of them talking about, this was a few years ago, won't name names, obviously, or clubs, but, um, <laughs> you know, them talking, oh, I just done my, just done my UA, I'm just doing my UA4A. I was there the other week. Oh, it's, this coaching stuff is so simple, isn't it? I can't wait to be a coach. It's so simple. Mm. You just think, man, coaching is one of the, to be a great, it's one of the toughest hobbies or professions that you can get involved with. If you're winning if you're ready to be good at it or you 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 have a will to be good at it um mm. it's one of the easiest things to do if you don't care you know if you're just mm. going to stand there with your mobile phone and let the kids kick the ball around then it's easy but um it, it is brutal brutally tough and and, mm. and 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 so look that that's why i would say there um perhaps not ev not every club not every coach mm. i'm not saying that but some haven't quite kicked on. And the sad thing mm. is there's so much good stuff out there that they can do that mm. can help, you know, organizations like Middlesbrough, mm. you know, uh, be the best that they can be, optimize uh, player engagement, learning, and performance. Mm. With, with, with that then, and I think what you're really saying is like reluctant to change. Um, and there was something that you mentioned around, we've always done it this way. It kind of got me from thinking about Gary Neville where he says, oh, it's the Manchester United way. Like, this is how we've always done it. It's how Fergie did it, you know. Um, and then obviously right, right now, it feels like, man, you are still stuck in that that chain of not wanting to change because, you know, living on past histories. But this isn't a Man United podcast, so I won't go into that. But where do you think culture is is started then because you obviously there's a coach and you've been working within organizations there's players as well but where do you think that culture is started um is in sorry not as in manchester united's culture but where is a culture at a club started yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah the, the I, look i i i think um it's um and, and and just just as a quick aside i mean i mm. i spent time working with steve mclaren in the second yeah. stint at, at derby and obviously he mm. was manager of yeah, for what, quite um, quite some time and yeah. you know he used to regale me with stories of that manchester united um dressing room uh you know when he was uh ferguson's uh main assistant and uh or head assistant and um you know it's very much a player driven uh changing room there mm. um with the likes of Roy Keane and Gary Neville and and, and David Beckham and and maybe that's the Manchester United way is, is is something that's more player driven but um where does it start um I think it's a really 
interesting question that can't be answered succinctly. I think it it, it can be started in different ways. I mean, one could instantly say, well, l- let me answer it this way. I would say as a broad brush statement out there right now, you've got two different formulas. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and that I never like binary answers because things are more complex, but yeah, than that, but go with this by and large, you've got manager driven cultures or organization driven cultures. I would argue right now that it take Brighton and Brentford, especially Brighton, that's an organization driven culture in as much as we are going to set this up from an organization perspective. You know, so for instance, at Brighton, I, I'm 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 going to say something that uh, is 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 true, but isn't a hundred percent accurate, probably. But they've got something like six different departments, mm-hmm. and those six different departments will always, by and large, stay the same. They're they're going to keep the same staff for you know until those staff leave. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changing. They bring in a manager or head coach who has to align themselves with those staff. And so the, the the advantage of that and the strength of that is now we have a shared language, a common set of guiding principles, probably a common set of values and behaviors um, that are driving the day-to-day behaviors of both the coaching staff and the players. You know, mm. we culture is ultimately what we do and what we say. And so what they do and what they say becomes very, very consistent. Okay. Now, it's easy to put two and two together and say, that's why they're in the Premier League, because they're doing that. But there's probably other examples of organization-driven cultures who are less successful than Brighton. Um, They just happen to do it very, very well, in my opinion. Um, Could they do it better? Probably, possibly, who knows? Um, But at the moment, it's going, going well. The other way is that, I suppose, to Alex Ferguson way, which is, hey, I'm the manager, I'm the leader, I'm the most important person here, I set the tone. Myself and my coaches, I and we set the tone here. We set the culture, Mm. uh, at least around all of the football stuff. Mm. Now, that can have an advantage. Now, let me tell tell you where there's one advantage there, Mm. is that ultimately we do have to accept that some people are damn good at what they do, no matter what their job mm-hmm. is. Okay. So you get someone like Sir Alex Ferguson and he, by, by his own admission, would probably say, well, probably on the training ground, he wasn't the world's greatest coach. Coach, That's why he had Rene Mullenstein and, and, and Steve McLaren and other really, really good coaches. Cause Steve is a very, very good coach. Mm. Um, um, but um, he, um, had a set of principles that really worked for him and really helped Manchester United, obviously. Um, you know, uh, a, a, another example might be uh, Mikel Arteta, um, although yeah. Arsenal probably have a very good setup by and large. It's come in Mikel and create a culture here. And he's, st- mm. you know, that started to work very well for him right now as we're speaking. So you can, we can't get rid of ability and talent as a player, ability and talent as a manager. So the, maybe the problem with the organization driven cultures, a weakness can be where well, we can't necessarily hire the most talented manager because often the most talented managers, the unique, dynamic, um, uh, compelling managers are, are the ones who go, no, 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 no. I'm not fitting in with you. 
you fit in with me. I'm bringing my mm. staff. I that's how I'm going to roll. So, so that can be an advantage with having a, a manager-driven culture. The disadvantage is obviously is that turnover can be so brutal. And if they get it wrong, I mean, uh, if I may say so, I mean, I, I know some of the people behind the scenes at Aston Villa, but I'm sure Unai Emery is going to be really successful. But, you know, they've had half their staff, you know, <laughs> the footballing staff leave. That's an exaggeration, but go with it. I'm caricaturing it, but they've had a whole bunch of people leave people who those players have been you know confiding in talking you know all kinds of personal stuff who've been working on specific tactical and technical things with those coaches those coaches are gone another set of coaches go in mm. what if Emery goes and loses six games on the spin what they're going to bring another mm. you know set of coaches in now that can work that can mm. work but that has its disadvantages. Last thing to say here is one could argue, and it's an easy case study to pinpoint because it's so successful. And obviously it's underpinned by money and how comfortable we are with this money. One, you know, one, it's up to the individual what they yeah. feel about it. But Manchester City, you could mm. argue, have done this very well in as mm. much as they have this unique, compelling, brilliant manager, head coach, mm. Pep Guardiola, and they've managed to set up this kind of culture from the academy upwards that mm. seems to be uh, more sustainable and seems to be uh, less transient. So mm. uh, I think that that's a, a, a very compelling model that kind of brings those two together. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mm. Really interesting around the organisation and the management side of things because in a Middlesbrough perspective, it felt like our previous manager, Chris Wilder, was that management culture. And when things are going really well, uh, going well on the pitch, it's going well across the club. You can feel it. But when it doesn't start to go well, um, when a manager, obviously Chris, was, was linked with Burnley and that could have went through, that could have probably was going to go through and didn't happen and then Bournemouth as well, and that hasn't happened either. It seemed like there was a big shift in culture of the team. So I'm really intrigued. So that that really intrigued me where you're saying around like management, because when it does go bad, it can a lot of players could probably switch off from that, right? So like it, the culture would probably become tarnished very quickly. Would you say that? I I I, I and I think that and first thing it's really important yeah. to say I, yeah. I I I've never met Chris wilder yeah. and uh, have a huge admiration for his incredible success mm. at sheffield united i've yeah. worked with players who've played under him mm. um i've only got admiration for him so what yeah. i'm about to say yeah. doesn't speak to 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 chris wilder but um i i, I therefore do believe it is incumbent on a th- this is how if i may say so how strong a manager you are um from uh from leading your coaches you need really good coaches uh, and and really good coaching processes in place so for example number one if it starts to go wrong then your coaching processes within your coaching practice will be tested as you're saying and this is where they need to be really strong this is where your biopsychosocial processes need to be really strong you know so so what are your protocols and processes around coach athlete relationships how are you getting are you have you got every player on an individual development program so irrespective of losing they're still they've still got the, that to focus on how dynamic are your team coaching sessions your your activities in your sessions irrespective of losing our players still looking forward to coming in being stretched and being supported being challenged and being supported um uh what else to say um if you are, and all of those are tested, if you are, you know, if you're a manager who is in the limelight and, you know, maybe Bournemouth come in for you, as you said, or Burnley come in, to, in for you. Well, you, you manage the emotional temperature of the organization best, mm. again, if you've got those lines of processes, coaching processes within your coaching practice. And this, for me, in my humble opinion, and this isn't a, a, a remark about any coaches that I've worked with or managers or, 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 or Chris or anybody else associated with Middlesbrough, what I found is that if you've got three or four really good coaches underneath the manager that the manager is utilizing. So for instance, mm-hmm. you've got a coach who's really working on individual player development programs. 
systems you know mm -hmm. you've got really good use of video analysis and data you know deliberate practice is is going on you've got really robust session designs utilizing you know modern day learning principles such as desirable difficulties challenge point all the things we talk about on my podcast you know um then then you're creating a very compelling engagement process with the players. And it just, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that people don't feel down when, when you lose, but it just means that the emotional ride is our, our, our waves that are light rather than big crashing waves, you know, right. and I've been in amongst the mix at plenty of clubs whereby a loss is a devastation. Uh, a manager being linked with another job is suddenly incredible uncertainty. And you've got to do everything you can to create a culture with the right coaching practices and processes in place to lessen that emotional roller coaster and help the organization as a whole pay attention and point noses in the right direction. Of course, very easy to talk about these things on a podcast, much more challenging to execute in practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking about it and doing it is, is completely different things. And there was, um, there's something I want to chat about when it's around like teamship and leadership. And I think they all coincide with what we've been saying then. In one of your books, you're, you're on about teamship. So I feel like it'd be really good to like understand and unpack like the concepts of that and verse that against like leadership because, um, Obviously, one thing from a lot of things that managers have said at Middlesbrough, that about Boris change room, it's quiet. We always want more leaders. Every coach always wants more leaders. Um, but how would you, um, to ask the question, teamship versus leadership, um, what is the concepts of, of, of teamship and what's, how does that differentiate from leadership? Well, I mean, I'll give you a non-academic uh, definition is my personal definition. I think leaders influence and I think teammates support. It's really as simple as that, because we've got to unpack some of these things in simple tones. Not everybody can influence. That's the reality of it. How do we influence in football? What is leadership in football? It's probably by, you know, uh, by action, by instruction, by energy. Probably those three. Again, I'm not necessarily leaning on the leadership literature within sports psychology, but by action, by instruction, by um, energy. Not every, not every leader who leads by action is going to be able to instruct. Mm. Um, not every player who instructs is going to energize. Not every player who energizes is necessarily a good instructor. Some are all three. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, right? <laughs> that to me is leadership from a player perspective. Now, people bemoan a lack of leaders, but then you look at their coaching practices mm. and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, so you're creating sessions, your session design is basically, you know, you put on a rondo, a keep ball, a small sided game, and 11 v 11, you do a little bit of pattern work um, and then you go play. And it's like, well, where are the practices related to developing leaders? So um, I, I hear a lot of this. We haven't got leaders anymore these days. Generation Z, gener millennial generation, and I think it's every generation said these days there's no leaders, and yet you've got to you've got to have the capacity as a coach. And this comes back to coaching is hard uh, and uh, and broad. Um, you've got to have the capacity to inject your session design with leadership practices. 
you know mm. are you giving your leaders the people you think can be leaders or improve their leadership um the opportunity to lead and that can be mm. as basic as giving them the chance to lead in team huddles between activities between sets and reps in water breaks day to day just doesn't happen players have a water break there's so much i can say about water breaks around learning and uh and leadership and, and teamwork but it rarely happens rarely utilized or at least in my experience so so, so so you've got to incorporate i mean for me lead a leadership group four or five players should be an extension of your coaching staff in many mm. respects you know, it's about giving them the opportunity to develop their competence around leadership. So they have to have skin in the game when it comes to tactics. They've got to have some kind of say, some kind of voice. Um, and you've got to give them some kind of opportunity to drive home the main messages. So we've got to develop leaders. That's just, you can't just bemoan it. Oh, no leaders anymore. Come on, do yeah. better do better the second thing then is 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 teamwork as you can see i, I this is 17 years of frustration boiling over it <laughs> um then 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 teamwork um okay and that that's not necessarily to influence although teammates can influence i understand that um um but it, it, it again for me teamwork needs to be injected into session design and again let's let's refer back to, to what I was saying, huddles, for instance, mm. you know, as a coach, you can get in that huddle and you could, uh, for example, there is a start, there is a teaching practice called cold calling. Okay. Mm. So I, as a coach can go, Hey, come on, Joe, give us some feedback there. What was good. Give me something that was good there. Joe pick somebody and Joe picks Fred and then mm. Fred picks Paul and then Paul picks Peter and so on and so forth. What are you doing? You're creating. Um, let's talk about teamwork being cooperation, collaboration, and communication. Okay. Well, sorry, I beg your pardon. Cooperation, coordination, and communication. Mm. All the C's in sports psychology. Um, cohesion as well. Task cohesion and social cohesion. What football's really good at doing is pre-season, let's go canoeing. Okay. Let's go climb that rock over there. That's going to make us great teamwork teammates. <laughs> now, I'm not denying that a little bit of social cohesion isn't important. Great, brilliant. Let, let's go climb that rock over there. That looks like great fun, and, and and so on and so forth. Let's get in that boat and let's let's do it together and let's paddle down the stream. And some of that, you know, some of that might 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 filter into getting to know each other and a bit of bond. Absolutely exists. No problem with that. What tends to be lacking is task cohesion task cohesion is working together as the name suggests on the task at hand you know you know in servitude to the goals that we have so what are we doing there now that becomes a bit trickier and that becomes things like that dynamic huddle it becomes mm. the conversations in between activities that we can as coaches can drive um it can be helping players understand the importance of of um deliberate conversation outside of training mm. okay um i had a many years ago i was working with some west ham players many years yep. ago 
and um, and two of them. One one was played more defensively. One played more offensively as a, as a striker. Mm. And they used to travel into the training ground together and travel back together. Okay, one mm. couldn't drive, and they would have a you know conversations. And mm. because they were in each other's company in the car on the way to train on the way back from training talk often turned to training and game and how they saw the game and so on and so forth rather than it just being mates having banter there was much more conversation about football mm. and um over time the striker said to me i love playing with that defender mm. because i know what that defender's thinking as soon as he gets on the ball that defender said to me i love playing i love it when that striker's in the team because I know what he's thinking when I'm on the ball and I know what he's looking at and I know what, what he, you know, he's thinking about in terms of getting behind the defenders, getting, you know, linking up. I know, we know. That knowledge, okay, comes from that those conversations, okay? Mm-hmm. Conversation, communication drives task cohesion. Footballers need to become, we need to find a way to help people who just like to do to converse about their doings, to have conversation mm. around their doings. That's really important for teamwork. That's not easy with a bunch of footballers who just like to do. Mm. And we need to find ways to help players do that. So that's task cohesion alongside social cohesion that drives collaborate, uh, that, that sorry, drives coordination and cooperation through the prism of communication. That's great teamwork. And, and, and this seeing Seeing the world through the eyes of your teammates is so important. And this is where, for example, don't underestimate as a fullback, the regular centre-back that you play with gets injured and another player comes in who rarely plays, but plays in a slightly different way or has a slightly different style about them, that can impact the fullback's ability to read the game with with, with relation to... Um, that centre-back. Think about the challenges right now that Liverpool are having. Mm. It can be, and I'm not saying this is why, but it can be. Mm. We sell, for example, uh, Mane to Bayern Munich. Mm. Suddenly now there's that player has gone, that very influential player. And it's not always easy to plug that gap. Because mm. suddenly there's a slight loss of task cohesion. Suddenly I can't see the way the team operated uh, last season, like I do now. And that makes a difference to my capacity to execute with positive intent. And that intent is that intent is that, that confidence feeling that you spoke about earlier. So now suddenly I'm a little bit more anxious and a bit more avoidant, a bit more inhibited. So all of these things create a mess, a complex mess, a noise that can be very, very challenging. And that's why, these you know if you as a borough supportive you think about it's really complex inside there inside that Mm. training ground the challenges these these coaches and manager and players face is complex and that's why i always say to coaches you've got to have a biopsychosocial plan you've Mm. got to work on leadership teamship and relationship you've got to have a way of doing player learning you've got to have mental skills frameworks in place when you have these things in place and you're constantly critically appraising the 
how you're doing it, the what, the how, the why, then you mm. give yourself, you don't guarantee success, but you give yourself your best opportunity for success. Mm. I'm so, there's so much to unpack. Um, I think with, with, I think when you were saying there around understanding the football pitch, and um, there's one thing I used to ha- happen to me a lot when I was playing football and also when I went to coaching was I used to put my centre-back up front and then put my, up front, my striker in defence. So then they would understand each other's roles um, and try and gain an understanding of what, some, what someone does and why they should do it. Um, and I always found that to work quite well, but I didn't really understand the psychological side of things. I just thought it was kind of a good thing to make you a much more well-rounded game and to learn in that way. And, and, and really from a coaching perspective, it's not just doing that. It's also there, then it's asking the right questions, getting those mm-hmm. two players together and, 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 and driving a good conversation, asking open-ended questions. What are we doing when we're doing that? We're influencing their epistemological chain. We're engaging them in metacognition. We're helping them grow. We're building brain pathways around the game, you know, around the, the logic of the game. Okay, uh, so and and that's so so important. Again, you'd be surprised how many players at the very top level are just feed from their the the skill in their feet. They mm-hmm. don't really know the logic of the game, and they don't necessarily appreciate the the game models from a principles of play perspective. And and, and that's mm-hmm. that's again that's this big debate in talent development pathways. You know, mm-hmm. you know how how do we do that? How do we do that? And 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 this is I wrote a critique recently about the recent Crystal Palace documentary, which mm-hmm. again. No comment on Crystal Palace. It was Channel 4. It was about their academy. No comment on those brilliant coaches. Okay, they've opened up their doors. Um, but it was a lot about every every episode. It's got to work hard, got to work hard, got to work hard, got to work hard. Players would say, I've got my contract now. I've got to work hard. It's all about working hard. And it's like, it's not, a, it, it's not, not about practicing a lot. Nobody denies if you want to get good at something, you've got to practice a lot. But it's so much more subtle than working hard. It's the intricate details that goes into the 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 the, the, the working hard that matters. Anyway, mm. sorry, you you'll get me on a different subject there. Uh, no, I mean by all means, going for it. But uh, I was going to say like, around like the learning stuff, and we've said about culture and creating like a decent culture and how a good culture and bad culture might look. Players wanting to learn. For you, if you're going into a club or work with an individual who wasn't wanting to work in that particular culture or willing to learn in a certain way um how would you deal with that because you know you've always you see in the in the papers all the time or oh, someone's got a bad attitude or someone's not willing to take stuff on board he's half the player he used to be he's arrogant all that kind of stuff how would, obviously that's that is a outside field perspective and they don't understand any of it um but how would you work with a more challenging uh player because obviously as me as a coach you know i've i've always tried to find tried different methods around asking them the question and making them the lead rather than rather than me giving them the instruction uh so like how would you look to to try and manage that um and i love i love what you've done there um uh, and that would be my <laughs> first question <portion. laughs> <laughs> no I, I look i i think let me let me reference this first of all by saying that there were always going to be um, occasions, time, situation, context whereby a person, a player doesn't suit a particular 
uh, club organization coaching culture you know i'm not going to sit here and go i've got the answers to everything and this is the way you need to, that that that's crazy stuff i've been in enough um i failed enough um in in, in in my career i've been in enough coaching cultures to understand these places are very complex and also these places are very complicated and human beings are very complex and sometimes it is just it is really challenging to help a player um and there's certainly some i've been engaged in clubs and some players i've just you know they haven't warmed to me or mm. i've said the wrong thing at the wrong time or dan you've got big eyebrows i don't like you anymore <laughs> or you know there's all kinds of things but that that's part of being a human being we have to accept that mm. however however i always say to coaches and I include me in on that one. I'm a psychological coach. We have to be as open as we can. We have to seek as many, we have to be as no stone left unturned as we can possibly be, as much as our context possibly allows. Okay. Mm. And at the very elite level, that might be, you know, you might not have that long with a player mm. um, who, I, I don't think a player is difficult although i understand behaviors can appear to be difficult hmm. um pl players are people and people um have typical behavioral patterns there's a name for that uh it's called personality and you know that player who might be seen as difficult to coach if we're going to use that word might be just somebody who is low agreeable for instance there's five personality traits openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism low agreeable people players uh, tend to like their own counsel uh, um, they tend to be disagreeable um, and so how would you do that I love your solution and I've I've talked to coaches about this plenty plenty of times in the past is to be more autonomy supportive in that situation be inquisitive be curious okay all right so you don't feel my solution is the right way okay um so tell me about your solution within our game model talk to me mm. about how you want to do this okay mm. and look i get you might walk into spurs and antonio conte might say ah you're crazy you can't do that again that's would be his style of coaching or jose Mourinho would say, no no way great you can't you can't uh let that that um hierarchical leadership slip that's fine that that's the way they like to lead and that's no problem however there may be ways to help this person and to coach this person and i think that if you're being autonomy supportive and you're letting that player lead you can write down what they're talking about you can negotiate with that player um you know you could you know if you've got strong uh, a strong game model with with specific principles of play you know why you're doing what you're doing with depth etc etc um stuff that i'm not that akin to when it comes to being a sports psychologist um I, I, I would say that as long as you give them a voice you let them be heard you start to work on the things that maybe they want to work with but chip away at helping them understand why your way i mean their way might be better might work better for them you know, we, you know, it just might so experiment with that. But they're also, you know, give them a chance, give them a voice, give them an opportunity to practice that, support that. Um, and and um, keep questioning and mm -hmm. potentially keep coming back to the way you want to coach. And 
the, the, the actions, the responsibilities you want them, the solutions that you've got for them, keep coming back to that. Keep making suggestions, you know, if you've got the time to do that. So that 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 that's a that's a potential way to deal with that kind of kind of player. But the reality of coaching is players are people and thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, and behaviors happen to people they don't do these things on purpose okay i'm on the more introverted side of uh, the introversion extroversion dimension i don't do that on purpose that's my nervous system it gets exhausted in social situations i don't do that on purpose right people who are low agreeable are low agreeable partly because of their genetics and partly because of the interaction between their genetic and their early life experiences they mm. don't do these things on purpose okay mm. so so that would be a sympathetic eye on human behavior it's whether a coach wants to align themselves with that sympathy or whether they say hey this is my culture this is my coaching practice this is the way we do it here there's no negotiation mm. I, I could unpack a lot of like the personality types that we, we'd see in, in, in leadership so you've got obviously the color side of things like the red green blue yellow and we could go a lot into like that. that i know we exactly don't, we, we don't like that no traits not types traits not types things like look I, i'm not here to if you love mbti myers briggs or uh, you're talking about the disc model which is mm. is is the which has a is not gold standard in in personality. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, personality is done in traits, uh, not types. Um, but I can understand why these things can be seen as useful for coaches. Mm. So I just yeah. want to say that. Yeah. No. So I was going to say like around like the like individuals are different. So like my, my point was going to be around like differentiate around like uh, you, you uh, people and how a certain individual can work better with a different individual and then also like how we can combine relationships off the base of that. Um, I've got two final questions for you because I feel like we would need a definitely a part two um, because I could talk to you for absolute hours and just unpick your brain. Um, but we speak a lot and then this might be like a throwaway term or whatever now, um, but or why, uh, why we do things. And I, when I'm coaching, I would say, why do you think we should play the ball on the line or why should we do a combination play or in the business term of, of why is my goal to be a head of media or uh, why do I do what I do? So I want to ask, what is Dan Abraham's why and why do you do what you do? Um, I just, I, I think a combination of things. Uh, I think I enjoy helping people. Um, but, um, I'm also really curious, uh, and interested. I, I, I think, I think if I was to be a hundred percent honest with myself, that curious curiosity derives from the failure to make it as a golfer. Um, mm. I just, you know, some people I used to play with would laugh and say, you know, Dan, you were never going to make it uh, to the very top level. And I think they were right. I think there has to be an athleticism, um, hand-eye coordination, if you want to use that term, to, to, to put it very simply. Um, but I, I, I just wonder, I certainly would have won more money and had more fun mm. if I was able to put in practice the things that I know now and maybe if certain circumstances had been different and maybe if I'd been coached in a slightly different way. So I, I, I think 
not from every coach, um, mm. but from from some. And and so I just I'm I think that failure to make it as a pro golfer drives my curiosity, mm. and my I'm blessed that I'm curious about something that I'm really interested in and passionate about. And I'm blessed that that then helps other people, sometimes probably hinders other people, uh, you know, if, if the relationship doesn't work out. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that would be my why. Mm. Okay. That's a really good why, to be honest. Uh, if you saw fully invested. I can, I can tell from just being, you love what you do mm. and I can see the growth of what you're looking to do and where your, you talk your goal will be. I think I can just see that and I could unpack that more, but I'm not going to, but my final question um, is if someone's starting out or wanting to learn more about sports psychology um, and understanding people, what is like a one book or recommendation that you would recommend to someone who's listening and you can use your own podcast here as well. I, I won't, I won't not let you use it and give that a push as well. Um, but what's our recommendation you would suggest? I, I, I think my podcast is great, not because I'm a particularly great host, but because I have great guests. And I, I think there's going to be some episodes where some people listening in would say, whoa, that was a deep dive, you know. Um, but, you know, I'm proud that we have, now around 12,000 downloads a week in around 100 countries in what is really quite niche. You know, mm. I'm never going to compete with Jake Humphrey and, and Damien because ultimately they get superstars on and Jake is Jake. And if I may say so, you know, they do things really well at a very surface level. But um, if you want a deeper dive, um, I'm there speaking to the world's leading academics and sports psychology practitioners and other also others involved in sports uh, and really coaches actually because I do sometimes think that you know you talk to a manager and they say things and it's not always what goes on behind the scenes I'm more interested in those who really dig into the theory and the applied work and and so if you're really interested in sports psychology I think my podcast is a really good starting point again not because I'm particularly Michael Michael Parkinson-esque but because um, I've got great guests um and hopefully football fans would really like my books as well uh, soccer tough Hey, Gareth Bell did, right? Soccer Tough 2, uh, Soccer Brain. And if you're, if you're a golfer, uh, uh, Golf Tough. Um, I'm blessed that those have been global bestsellers. Um, so, so for me, uh, if I was to be a little bit selfish, they're a, a great first uh, port of call if you're a, a football fan and are curious to, to look beyond the surface level and the external. So if I may say so, I'll, I'll answer it like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, where can they find you, Dan? Uh, social media, your website, where can they get your podcast? Sure. So, uh, website is danabrahams.com, danabrahams.com. Uh, the podcast is The Sports Psych Show. Just Google The Sports Psych Show and, and it will come up on, on all the, the, the podcast platforms available. Um, uh, Twitter, I actually have three handles. Um, my main one is at DanAbraham77. Um, there's actually, I've got four now at DanAbraham77, <laughs> uh, at the Sports Psych Show, 
at Abraham's Golf and um, at Dan Abraham's Soccer Academy is my newest one. Um, and uh, uh, Instagram is at Dan Abraham's uh, at Dan Abraham's Sport, and Facebook is at Dan Abraham's Soccer. Hmm. and LinkedIn at Dan Abrahams, where I do a little article each day. So I'm quite social media friendly. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I, I follow all of your stuff as well. So um, I, I tend to read the threads that you put on Twitter and obviously your articles on LinkedIn. That's like, just for me, I just find it so interesting to, to look at and trying to implement that in my professional career and coaching and coaching as well. And Thank you so much for coming on. I've absolutely loved every moment of that. And I feel like I've just learned so much in that time. And I have so much more, so many more questions to ask you, but I'd love to do a part two in, in, in the future. But for, for right now, thank you so much, Dan. And to the listeners and viewers, uh, all of Dan's uh, links are going to be in the bio of the podcast provider and on YouTube as well. Uh, but for right now, my name is Johnny Bullock. This has been the Board Breakdown podcast. And that was all Dan Abraham's chatter in a podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 